The information in this podcast is current on the day of recording. It is general advice only and does not take a personal situation into account. It may not be suitable for you. Welcome to Stock Take. My name is Goro Sodi. Joining me today is analyst Nick Cummings. Hey, Nick. Hi, Goro. And all the way from Assassination Capital um, is, no. uh, is Graham Wickham. <laughs> hey, Goro. All I'm hearing in the news, Graham, is like you know, terrorists getting murdered by governments, governments responding, ambassadors being pulled. What is going on over there in Canada? It, it's the Wild West over here. Vancouver is, yeah. I always suspected. Now it's been confirmed. There you go. Uh, where exactly were you, Graham? On the, no, no, when no, it happened. Okay. Yes. <laughs> right. Well, we've got, um, we've got a couple of topical things to discuss today. The, the top of mind really is the disaster swiftly unfolding, perhaps continuing to unfold at Star Entertainment, a stock that if you had told me two or three years ago that this thing would be trading at 60 cents or maybe less than 60 cents, I just wouldn't have believed you. I thought there would be no way that could have happened. And yet here we sit. So Graham, tell us the latest fiasco with Star, and then maybe we can start to unravel how the heck we got here. Yeah, I mean, I'm, it's just a mix of do I want to feel sorry for this stock or what have they done to themselves? It's just been one bit of bad luck and bad news after another. Uh, the latest thing is that they're raising capital for the second time in under a year to uh, repay a bunch of debt that they had coming due uh, kind of early next year. Really? So, yeah, they had an $800 million capital raising back in uh, February and they're now raising another $750 million now inflating the the share base by 77 percent or so wow and uh yeah diluting all the shareholders in the process and it yeah it, maybe we shouldn't talk about this on the podcast because it just grinds my gears that the, <laughs> the, the the ceo making these decisions doesn't own a single share of stock yeah, so of he course. isn't impacted at all he's yep. got all the upside none of the downside yeah and uh it's just a classic example of the the difficulty of valuing businesses when Fair. the CEOs don't have skin in the game. Fair. Because we could do all the maths on <laughs> Star, run all of our uh, valuation techniques and come up with a number. But when CEOs can do this kind of thing, it it changes the equation in kind of an unpredictable way. Fair. That Star continues to look undervalued. But as long as management doesn't, doesn't really care about shareholder dilution, it's very difficult to come up with a number that uh that really reflects it being undervalued so yeah bit of a bit of a tricky situation i can't help but comparing it to what's happened with minres over the last few weeks um mineral resources of course um stock that we've liked for a long time um they went to the bond markets and raised over a billion dollars in the u.s bond markets and there was some speculation that minres was going to raise equity and it has a enormous capex requirement over the next two years, and probably, probably more than two billion dollars than it has been over the next two years. That's a it's a ten billion dollar business, so it's a it's a considerable amount of money that they're spending, and they've already got a fair amount of debt. So um, there was some there was some chatter that they were going to raise capital, but because Chris Ellison owns, I don't know how much a huge amount of of stock um, in that business. Um, he just does not want to dilute himself. So he's managed that um, 
manage that share count really tightly. And that's the difference you get from someone who thinks of himself as an owner of the business. And you listen to Chris Ellison speak and it's always his business. You know it's his business and his passion. He started with his credit card, $10,000. It's now a $10 billion business. He, he's everything of himself is inside this business, right? It's such a different way of running things than, um, you know, a, a CEO is parachuted in from another company, um, sees risks and, and tries to, to solve problems with the with complete disregard for what that does to legacy shareholders. Yeah. Yeah, Objective is a similar case where... Objective's a good one as well. The CEO owns a ton, and so, of course, he doesn't take uh, these kind of decisions lightly. But, um, yeah, yeah, in Star's case, uh, Cook has come in, and he he's solving the problems, but he's solving them yes. in a way that... Uh, I mean, it really didn't, it, what, what kind of frustrates me with this one as well is that it didn't really need to happen. They had a perfectly mm. reasonable plan of uh, selling some of the assets and then leasing them back, some of the property portfolio and then leasing it back. Would have patched up a ton of the uh, debt issues that it had and sure. you wouldn't have this kind of dilution. I'm so, uh, why did they do that, Graham? That sounds like a very reasonable thing to pursue. Well, yeah, to me it was on track. Uh, everything seemed like it should have gone that way. They tried to sell Treasury before and then the deal fell through. I can't quite remember mm -hmm. why now. Uh, but then, yeah, I mean, they've still got other assets that they can work with That's or try right. and resell Treasury. Yeah. So I think this was just an easy, quick fix. Maybe they felt that the deadline mm -hmm. was coming a bit too close mm -hmm. to refinance and so they didn't want to push their luck. But uh, yeah, I mean, this was just a savage capital raising. They were, they were raising it at... Such a low price, such a low valuation for the business, and it's actually hard you know, diluting there some, everyone in the process. There are some cap raises, some dilutions that you just cannot recover from. It it inc yeah. permanently increases the share count so much. I I I can't but, see how they recover from this. I think this is a, a lost cause now. I, I um, yeah, I mean, I agree. Don't. I think that the between these two capital raisings, they've they've inflated the share count so much that yeah, realistically, it's not going back to. Three dollars anytime soon. Well, it's I, I don't uh, think it's going back to two bucks anytime soon. Or, you know, I, I yeah. I mean, that's yeah. That probably is the case. But uh, I mean, it still looks undervalued today. That I could make the case for it being worth over a dollar yeah. in the right light. Yeah. But so yeah, I mean, at, at today's share price or at the issue price of sixty cents, it's it it still looks like good value. But you just don't have that assurance that management won't pull this same trick again next year when it wants to raise capital to buy something or refinance or whatever. So, yeah, we we decided in the end to, even though the stock continues to look undervalued and maybe some uh, very uh, risk-tolerant shareholders might want to continue holding or participating in the mm. raising, there's just too much uncertainty around the business, the regulatory environment, management's kind of mishaps that... It's it's hard to recommend it as a buy at today's price, or recommend participating in the raising. Nick, what's the key lesson here for you as as an outsider who I don't think has ever no. bought the stock? I've never really heard you discuss it, so I'm not no, really no, tempted by it. But what, what what's what does this tell you about um, either the business or the industry? Yeah, I think for, for the casino industry or for a casino, yeah. it's essentially 
particularly in Australia, licensed to print money, or at least it should be. It should be. That's that's what everyone yeah. assumed. Yeah. Yeah, and I think the lesson here is, even if it has that license, if there's debt on the balance sheet, no matter how good yeah. the company is, if there's debt on the balance sheet, um, you are beholden to creditors if things go wrong. Yeah, and that's what yeah. equity holders are unfortunately finding out. I mean, yeah. I think I, I read back on some of our. Um, some grams research and underpinning our thesis only a year ago was two dollars worth of property on the balance sheet right. and that property value hasn't changed but now right. it's being shared with you know 60 percent or 70 percent more shares and it's now worth 60 cents yeah, yeah um and everything's gone wrong but if you have debt on the balance sheet um at some point you're beholden to creditors if those things occur i can uh, you know for me the that lesson cannot be learned strongly enough or often enough. The the dangers of of overburdened balance sheets, no matter how good you think the business is, a lot a lot of the time we'll think, um, or, or management will say that the the business is quite stable; it can handle a lot of debt. I still think we need to be very vigilant against these um, these heavily geared businesses because look what's I mean, happening again. Sorry, yeah. And another example that you never thought was going to happen was airports and a pandemic. Yeah, well, that's and what that, and what they, you know, yeah, and that's that's you know again a monopoly asset with right. regulated revenues. You think nothing can go wrong, and they can be geared five or six times uh, yeah. into their earnings, but things do go wrong. The one I was going to go, go with wrong. was um, was CleanAway, um, which a, a couple of years ago this is supposed to be this is a um, a contracted business to local councils, a very stable revenue base, but um, they just geared themselves to their eyeballs, um, got into some sort of trouble with acquisitions. And then, and what, what, you know, it, the debt means that you cannot make mistakes and you, and simple cyclical downturns end up being balance sheet disasters because then the debt becomes a problem. You have to raise equity at super low prices. And as we said before, that's it. I mean, you're permanently diluted and you'll never recover from that. Um, that's certainly been the case for clean away. And I think that's going to be the case for star. So Graham, when you're not sounding very enthusiastic here. This does sound, seem though it's it's extremely bombed out. I can't imagine anyone wants to touch it now. But you're, you're saying that's probably yeah. That's the flip still... side. I mean that that is. I I still look at it today, and I can. Yeah. It does look undervalued. Uh, that if you assume even kind of modest growth, if it cleans up its act, it gets through the Oztrack fine unscathed, and all of that. It, it does look undervalued today. So people who want to take a punt on it or who want to participate in the raising and maintain their uh, stake, then, well, yeah, there's there are rational arguments for it. But at the same time, it's just, there's just so much risk still built in, uh, particularly managerial risk that it's, if you've got, yeah, if you're even a little bit hesitant with that kind of stock or you're not going to be able to maintain your cool when the next bombshell hits, then yeah, it might not be for you. For me, it's, it's the calculus is slightly different. I just don't want to invest in a business where it's clear that management aren't acting like owners. I, I completely yeah. agree with what you said before, Graham, that there are other, there seem to be obvious alternatives. The, the business is sitting here with an enormous asset base. And instead of trying to monetize that asset base, which by default involves shrinking the business, you know, you have to sell maybe the best part of the business. They went and and destroyed, I think, any any prospect of future returns by diluting so much at such low price. Like, yep. Yeah, I, that's the management. I that agree. Has burnt bridges and 
I cannot again, um, almost at any price, go back and, and invest with them. And it might mean that you lose out on a double, but, but that's fine. I think sometimes you've got these rules and um, they serve you well um, over average. And sometimes it means you don't make a double. And I'm perfectly comfortable with that. Yeah, I think you're wow. right. What a somber story. Um, okay, <laughs> let's <laughs> let's move along to... Oh, actually, let's insert and uh, let's have a little break um, now. Starting now. Starting now. <laughs> if you like the sound of our investing approach, but you're not yet a member, visit intelligentinvestor.com.au and take a free 15-day test drive of our membership. You'll get immediate access to all our current buy recommendations, model portfolios, and engaging educational research tailor-made for people who want to manage their own money. That's intelligentinvestor.com.au for a free 15-day trial. No credit card required. You know, I realized that we don't actually have to wait for the break to... to you know, before we were sitting here quietly and then Riyadh was like, yeah. oh, guys, you don't actually have to sit there and wait for the break to For 30 go. seconds? We imagine I, it in the background. I'll just insert playing. it. <laughs> right, I'm afraid the next segment is no sunnier than the last one. I listened to an ASX presentation um, from the ASX Mid and Small Cap Conference from a company called Superloop, and Superloop may be familiar to some listeners, members, because um, it's uh, used to be a darling. It, it was set up by Bevan Slattery, who's the founder of NextDC, Pipe Networks, Megaport. He's got quite a cult following um, in the markets, and and this is one of his darlings. It was set up to build and own fiber assets um, several years ago it built up a, a large collection of of um, self-built fiber in australia and in a big bunch of fiber they built in singapore and hong kong and the idea was just to monetize that fiber and i think what the business learned was that fiber isn't valuable in itself fiber is valuable if you have it's like a road toll if you have that monopoly connection from two places that really require connection then it makes no sense to replicate and your fiber becomes super valuable. But if you're just connecting fiber to areas that aren't in demand and aren't all that valuable, then your fiber is worthless. And that's exactly what Superloop found. They sunk hundreds of millions of dollars into building fiber that just did not seem it was needed or required at all. For me, this from the very beginning seemed like a company that was furiously trying to build something to sell something, a story to investors. He were fiber is hot. We're building a lot of it. We're a fiber infrastructure business we need infrastructure multiples that was the narrative i was getting from the business and of course it all fell apart collapsed um the, the shares been the, the stock's been a disaster um they've had to sell um all their international stuff and some of their local stuff and and it's now switched gears and it's now a um an isp so it basically resells nbn it's retained some of its fiber so it sells NBN, but but also has its own fiber they can piggyback off. So it, earn, it should, in theory, earn better margins than the typical NBN reseller. I, I don't see that being the case so far. In fact, I think this is the inferior business to Aussie broadband. But that's beyond the point. Beyond the point, this this presentation from the CEO, it was just. Um, I, I was thinking about Superloop because I thought the business model has changed. They've got new management in charge now. Um, their financials are turning around. And so this might be a turnaround story. Often I find a, a business that's failed in its first version, when it then morphs into something else, bad memories of the initial version stop people from buying it. And so it can be an opportunity if, if you're willing to be flexible. So I was listening yeah. to the presentation and the management just mm -hmm. said, oh, we've had a bit of an interesting history. And 
went through a journey. A journey. <laughs> We've been on an interesting journey. Thanks, Graham. That's right. It's always a journey. <laughs> he went through and sort of talked about the business without any mention to Superloop 1.0, you know, to, to any of the lessons they've learned, to the disaster that this business is, to the cost of to so many people. Just completely ignored it, glazed over it. And then um, all his plans were all revenue targets, all financial targets. You know, the new, the, the transformation strategy is called um, double down, double down again, it's called. And so the whole point, <laughs> the, the whole corporate strategy is to double revenue. That is the corporate strategy. And uh, uh, the lesson from this is if you hear a CEO talking about corporate strategy and it's all about financial metrics, we want to get our margins to this level. We want to get our revenue basis level. We want to grow to this size. Just run a mile. The strategies, the transformation strategies that work are the ones that have something to do with adding value to someone else, that, that create value for a customer. And uh, a good counterpoint to that is, is Telstra, which, which had its T20 strategy, which is really about reducing the complexity of the plans. And so customers were offered not a thousand plans, but something like 20. It, it reduced its number of plans it had on offer from about um, a thousand down to uh, 20 something. And, and that, yeah. that's something that's worth pursuing. Other success stories have often used um, a, a benefit to the customer to drive improvement internally. So. When I heard that this company is all about just doubling revenue, I, I just thought I'm not prepared to invest in this. And I just wanted to make that clear that we've looked at Superloop, the disaster's over, but I don't think recovery is underway. And I would not touch this business at all. But there's a perfectly awesome competitor in Aussie Broadband who's just doing all the right things. In fact, if you want to line up a good company versus a crap business, line up Aussie Broadband and Superloop, compare the two, and you have a perfect illustration of what good management looks like versus poor management, what a great business looks like versus a, a lousy business, and the kind of business you want to get involved with against one that you want to run far and fast from. That's the end of my rant. Thank you for indulging me. Um, yes, and it, it, guys, do you guys, <laughs> you own or ever thought about owning Superloop? I hasn't. I hasn't. Um, but I agree with everything you said. I just, I had a look at their financials this morning, and the other thing they've doubled down on is their share count. It's up five folds. Thank you. Yeah, it's a disaster. In the last, yeah. in the last five years, and yeah. it looks like one of those stories where the uh, sorry, one of those stocks where the story's changed. Um, there's been multiple acquisitions. I think they acquired yep. Big Air. And yeah, they bought Big Air. Yeah. Yep. Um, as you said, the new management team, and to hear that the um, that they have no accountability to the prior right. mistakes and seen the share price fall from what three dollars down to seventy cents and all this destruction of value um, yeah. for the yeah. shareholders is it's quite disappointing. It's, it seems like an obvious avoid. Yeah. I avoid is too nice a word. I, I just run really far and really fast from that one. Um, double avoid. Yeah. I'm sure we'll get letters from them, but um but yeah. I'll, uh, happy to read them. All right. Um <laughs> let's do uh should we do a, a break or Nick? I'm really keen to hear from you about this. Let, let, let's leave from you, Nick, because I, I think you've got a fascinating story to, to talk about. Nick's been doing some work on NVIDIA and wrote a cracking article. I thought one of the, the best pieces I've read on NVIDIA and there's been so many people writing so much on it. So this was great, Nick. So tell us, first of all, why is this stock worth looking at and, and what did you discover when looking at it? Yeah, well, I mean, like everyone else, I guess my... 
the what piqued my interest was just how much hype was behind this one story. It's a trillion dollar business now, Nvidia. Just say that again. It's a trillion dollar business. Yeah. I looked at this briefly a few years ago. It was only a hundred billion dollars, and even then, it looked like a big, expensive business. And it's ten bags since then. It's incredible. It's ten bags since then, and it's in a. I think it's in a hundred bags since twenty thirteen or twenty fourteen. Wow. Which is just incredible over that shorter time period. But if you even rewind back to last October, yeah. the stock's up, I think, four or five-fold. Oh, I mean, since October? You, since October last year, yeah. So oh, I didn't know that. Wow. The, if you put numbers behind that, that's a $200 billion or $250 billion business going to well over a trillion dollars. It's just, <laughs> just got a, you know, another planet. Yeah. Um, but, but why it's interesting is NVIDIA are the, the – so they're – uh, the, a monopoly, pretty or a virtual monopoly, um, in graphic processing units or GPUs, uh, and this is important right now because these chips are used to improve and train um, artificial intelligence models um, and applications, and that's where a lot of the hype behind the share price um, yeah. has come from. But you you are now starting to see that come through an actual financial performance. Yeah. This isn't just height with you know no substance there is um a lot of substance behind this um and even at a trillion dollar valuations at a trillion dollar valuation rather the scenario is where this share price could be actually good value um so it's not um so yeah it's not it's not a stock to write off just because it's up you know tenfold in the last couple of years or fivefold in the last year so, Nick, when you say the financials are coming through, do you, are you talking about revenue or profit or free cash flow? I mean, what what um, what numbers are improving? Uh, all of the above. So, oh, right, okay. I guess if we yeah, if, if we rewind a bit, I might just go back to where this business started. So, yeah. Nvidia was originally designed to, uh, GPUs were originally designed to improve gaming, um, and this was in the early nineties, mid nineties. Previous technologies relied on central processing units or CPUs that are dominated by Intel and advanced micro devices or AMD. And they use something called sequential processing or one task at a time. And that was... Hey, please, that I, I, I know what sequential processing is. You don't have to patronize us. <laughs> <laughs> We're not in grade two. Yes. <laughs> Well, anyway, that designed uh, that delivered sorry uh, really poor performance for gaming, and then GPUs came along and they did parallel processing, uh, which is just allowed simultaneous calculations and rendering of graphics in real time, and it made for a much more realistic realistic gaming experience. This was actually a pretty crap business because there was about ninety competitors, gross margins were in the thirties. Um, and it was very cyclical around PC launches and console launches. Mm. Fast forward a decade into the mid 2000s and all the early 2000s, and researchers actually realized buying a GPU from Best Buy was actually better at calculating large data sets than Stanford's supercomputer. Wow. Uh, which is kind of amazing for a couple of hundred dollars off the shelf. Very. Um, so that was the aha moment for NVIDIA, and they were very worried about uh, if they pursued the data centers and artificial intelligence and this, mm. this new revenue stream, that 
that will turn into gaming again. It'll be just a cyclical business with lots of mm. competitors. So they developed something called Coda, which is in layman's term, it's a programming software layer uh, that locks in developers because only uh, by using Coda, you can only use it on GPUs made by NVIDIA. And so this, when you use this software, you can manipulate the GPU to really improve the performance of the application you're creating. So medical images or weather forecasting or training a large um, language model like uh, ChatGPT. And that was that's what's really, you know, I guess that's why the stock's 100 bad in the last 10 years because this is now a reality. So data center revenue, which is tied into artificial intelligence, um, yeah. has risen from $300 million yeah. uh, in 2015 to $15 billion in 2020. Wow. Wow. Okay. Yeah. And because and... there's a massive, sorry, this because there's a massive switching costs, gross margins have gone from 30% to 65 or 70, 70%. Right. Wow. Um, and operating profit margins, I think they're now kind of close to 30 or 40% what they were previously, mm. um, or what they were um, under the gaming, um, where gaming was, was the main use for GPUs. So it's been a, a incredible turnaround in the fortunes um this industry and the fortunes of one company and now they're seen as yeah the industry standard of the picks and mm. shovels for the, this ai revolution in the same mm. way that cisco was seen mm. as the hardware solution to the dot-com era the other thing that they've managed to do is they've become the central node for the ai narrative so if you if anyone wants if, if anyone's thinking oh my goodness this ai thing is huge i gotta i gotta buy some ai stock this is the default AI stock. Um, in the way that Tesla became the default EV stock, and you're right, Cisco became the default internet stock. Sometimes it's not, it, no one teaches you this stuff, but but it might be worth learning how to identify some of these meme meme stock potentials. The, the uh, gains just seem to be incredible, and it's a source of great frustration that we where we sit here with our years of training, our in, the the hours we spent analyzing stocks and. And all the time and effort and struggle, and doubt, and then just some meme stock kind of goes up ten times, you know. But I'm not, not. But I think Nvidia is more than yeah, a meme yeah. stock. I'm, I'm right? not necessarily. It's really got something there. Yeah, yeah. Not it's necessarily saying saying that this is the meme, but but this these stocks that become the defining feature of a narrative, um, they they just go bonkers, and often they don't have anything. It sounds like in this case that they actually do. Um, just another question for you, Nick. Um, just on the volume of chips, I was reading that um, it's not just the software that locks the developers into NVIDIA chips, but um, the chips work better when they when you get a whole bunch of them working simultaneously. Mm. Um, yeah. So, do you have like uh, do you have numbers for the um, change in chip numbers or any forecasts for for what that might happen? I don't, and I don't think they released them. Okay. Um, yeah. The one of the, the, I think their H100 chip, which is the latest model, yeah, that can cost around forty thousand US dollars. Oh wow! Chip. Okay, yeah, and yeah. And I think you can pair about eight of them together for around yeah. a bit over two hundred thousand um, dollars. Yeah, right. US dollars, so it's incredibly expensive. Um, well, some of these there's, um, no, there's no real competition. AMD are making some inroads, but yeah. still, it's mainly Nvidia for now. I know some of these data center guys, they're talking about chip orders in the tens of thousands, um, you know, for a single site. So there's just, um, 
I mean, the the it, it, it's that combination of um, of software locking in the Nvidia as the supplier, and then the the kind of tailwind just exploding the number of um, causing explosion in the number of chips demanded. It's it's such a great place to be. Yeah, absolutely. Just one start on that. I mean, is ChatGPT use sure. ten thousand Nvidia chips to uh, train their AI model? Yeah, that's right. It's just one application or one model. It's a great model, but it's just one. <laughs> yeah. And every large tech business is now building their own AI model. Yeah, it's so, a, it's yeah. an arms race. It's like, it, it's a, yeah, it's an absolute arms race to get yeah. your hands on NVIDIA chips because they, they, can't, uh, right. they can't make them as quickly as they're you know, flying off the shelf. Do you have some idea about the prospect for competition? I mean, imagine, um, I mean, Apple came from nowhere to be a significant chip designer. And there are companies with resources like Apple, mm. several of them, many of them, in fact. What are the chances that someone can break this monopoly? I think it's, I still think it's low, but mm. they are trying. So Google and Amazon seem to be the most advanced. They're using, I think Amazon uses Graviton, their Graviton chip, and Google uses Tensor. So they, they have designed and made their own chips specifically for their own cloud and for certain workloads. Yeah. Um, now, they still need a lot of empathy chips for other areas, yeah. but there's no doubt that these, I guess, monopolies in other areas are realizing that NVIDIA is a monopoly and we need to look at this um, kind of quickly. Um, otherwise, they'll be this completely beholden to them. In the same way that before uh, Apple did the M1 chip that they were a little bit beholden to Intel. Yeah. And I understand that NVIDIA actually gets all its chips manufactured um, from one company. Um, yes. Is that yeah, TSMC. Yeah. I mean, does, is that an Monopoly over monopoly over monopoly. <laughs> incredible, right? And and um, TSMC gets a lot of its um, physical equipment from some Netherlands-based... Um, ASML. Like, it's, you know all the a, names. A, I, know, I know the stories. You know the names. Who's, who's at the end of the line? <laughs> yeah, yeah, like it's, it's just incredible. It's, it's there's duopolies and monopolies all throughout the right. semiconductor industry. There's been a yes, massive consolidation over the last ten years, and this just coming back to the supplier TSMC. They make, I want to say, ninety percent of the world's most advanced chips at the moment, or manufacture ninety percent right. of the world's most advanced chips. The other one is Samsung. Intel that was involved, that's still involved, has spent tens of billions of dollars trying to catch up and they haven't managed to do it. I mean, they're, they're still getting tens of billions of dollars in subsidies from the US government and to to catch up and they, they can't muster it. There's a lot of intellectual IP here that money can't buy. Yeah. Um, and I guess that's another risk for NVIDIA is they rely on one sole supplier, which is TSMC and they're based in Taiwan and that obviously comes with a, a several geopolitical risks. Where in that value chain do you, would you like to be most? Who do you think captures it? Because as you said, that's like the three, monopoly or monopoly or monopoly. Are they all making mega profits or, or where would you ideally sit in that entire chain? It's a good question. I think probably NVIDIA, if they can maintain their monopoly, which is the, the big if I, I, I'm more confident that ASML and TSMC will be a monopoly in 10 years than I am probably NVIDIA, but right. ASML and TSMC require lots of capital expenditure. 
right, right. Uh, right to manufacture their equipment and uh, manufacture these chips. So a large foundry, they call them for TSMC, can cost $10 billion. Right. Um, so it's huge amounts of capex. Whereas NVIDIA, by being what they call a fabulous company um, and not uh, owning their own manufacturing facilities, a very capital light, very capital light. So there's not as much capital expenditure. So free cash flow is beautiful. Amazing. Nick, this is one of the most fascinating industries in the world. Um, I would, I'd like actually one day for you to, to write a book about this because Chip Wars, which is the default, is a crappy read. It makes a fantastic, exciting industry, just a dull, boring read. Um, so there's someone, there's, there's room in the market there. I think you might be the man. Perfect. I'll, um, I'll get on beating a bestseller in my spare time. <laughs> well, you've got the filing cabinet for it. That's for sure. Keep all your notes in there. <laughs> now we're going to take another quick break and, and we'll be back um, for a final segment. Gora, yeah. I don't think you have to keep telling people you're having a break. Just stop talking. And oh, right. Okay. Okay. Sorry. sorry. But doesn't we... that sound a bit weird if it just suddenly cuts out and yeah. it goes to a break? Yeah. Yes, Steph. Jeez. No. Get with it. Get as long as it. your intonation goes down and it's clear that you're ending a topic or sentence, we can stitch it in. But you don't have to make like a big announcement about an ad every time and that is coming. Just zip it. All right, all right, we'll do it next time. If you enjoy our approach to investing but you don't want to manage your own money, check out Intelligent Investors' range of managed funds including income, growth, ethical, and international options. Decades of research and experience are distilled into these four managed funds with a focus on achieving outsized investment returns. Check out our performance track record, fees, and approach at intelligentinvestor.com.au forward slash funds dash overview. That's a mouthful. So once again, that's intelligentinvestor.com.au forward slash funds dash overview. Graham, um, we have an interesting question that we ought to discuss. Yeah. So this is our segment on, <laughs> <That was the same. laughs> on uh, member questions that we now are very religiously going to adhere to. Yes. Uh, we had a question come in from Sonal this morning who, I won't read the whole thing out, but essentially she said that uh, she prefers to buy stocks that are in the $1 to $20 mark instead of the $100 to $200 mark. And I think it's an interesting point because I, and her reasoning was that stocks with a lower uh, share price then have more room to grow because you just have to add an extra dollar and suddenly you've doubled it. Whereas for a $100 stock, adding an extra dollar is just a 1% gain. And I think it actually gets to a very common myth in investing, definitely early investors can fall for it. I did, many other people that I've spoken to seem to have had that experience too, where you feel that the share price itself is somehow gonna reflect what the opportunity is ahead of it. So the kind of typical thing are these kind of one cent stocks where you think that if you buy a stock that's only worth a cent, then that has a much bigger chance of growing because it is so low to start with. And, uh, yeah, the, the point is that that isn't really the case, that the share price can be manipulated by management, by things like stock splits or share buybacks or new uh, stock issuances, as Star reminds us. <laughs> but 
that share price can be controlled to some extent, not kind of in day-to-day -day movements, but there's definitely an element of control from management of whether they want a $100 stock, a $20 stock, or a $1 stock, or a $0.01 cent stock. So yeah, it has nothing to do with the company's underlying value, and it doesn't have any anything to do with the ability of the stock to grow, but it does reflect whether management want a particular kind of ballpark figure for where their share price should be. What are, what are your guys' experience with that? Did you have Nick? that same experience? Nick? I, I didn't. Um, I think I sort of grew up looking at Berkshire Hathaway a lot and there was so much literature around mm. why they weren't doing stock splits and that share price went from 300 to 1,000. I think now it's at 500,000 or maybe 700,000 for the A-class shares. Mm. Um, so it's a good example. Yeah. Yeah, having that in the back of my mind, I, yep. I never really looked at it that way. But I, I've certainly heard that from other people and it is a, probably a common error that um, uh, yeah, individual investors face. I must admit, it never occurred to me to, to think about it that way, but I can see how I can see how that would happen. I can see why it would be tempting to think that way. Um, but how would... So I'm kind of curious if yeah. it didn't happen for you guys, yeah. because I always kind of assumed that this was just a progression of... Yeah. investing knowledge how would you have known that it wasn't the case if you hadn't already learned about stock split splits shared buybacks things like that because i know that when i first started i mean mm. this is going back to like pre-teens uh i didn't quite make the link that the share number that the share count can change that the value of each share can then change because the number of shares on issue can each change uh yeah so how would you kind of yeah, how did you come to it? Like, Maybe it was just a quicker learning curve. <laughs> I think like most early investors, I was very quantitative and numbers focused when I started investing. And I always looked at stocks um, in terms of market cap. So how much profit am I getting for this market cap? And I used to calculate all uh -huh. these ratios. And then that's why I looked at it. And then I, then the share price would just become a function of the, of the market cap. I, I never... Broke that broke that link that the the share price is a function of the market cap. They always, I, I didn't realize that you could separate those two. They they all seem to very logically sound to me. But I, I you know I did economics and finance, and so I had that knowledge from very very early on. Um, as, I suppose if you don't have that knowledge early on, and you're looking at share prices every day, then that's the way you tend to see value in in terms of the share price. And that's just, um, yeah, you want to break that habit. As early as you can. This is such a dangerous way to invest, just psychologically, seeing um, prices moving up and down rather than the fortunes of the real companies, real businesses changing. Yeah, definitely. I think I think that's that's maybe one of the most important lessons you can get in investing is that the value yeah. isn't the share price. Yeah. They're two separate things, and your job is to work out is the difference big enough that it's uh, that it offers a margin of safety for you to invest. No, you're right. The, I, the, I, I was just going to make this point, Nick, and then and I'll throw it to you. The single most important lesson um, for any newish investor to learn is to think about stocks as businesses and not in terms of shares. You're buying a piece of the business. It, it just it's it's the most yeah. important lesson. Um, sorry, Nick, to cut you off there. Go ahead. Now, this came up uh, recently in the pandemic with right. a few of my friends that had seen. Mm. Webjet and a few other shares halved down 80%. And they thought, oh, well, travel's going to recover, which it has. That was, yeah. yeah. 
sound rational thought and that these share prices could recover to their previous highs. Didn't um, But they didn't realise that actually they're going and diluted themselves or these companies have diluted themselves mm-hmm. 50 or 60%. So it is, it's an important point to, um, and we've talked a lot about dilution and what it does to um, future returns this podcast. Yep. Uh, yeah, that, that pie can be split many, 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 many yeah. times over. <laughs> they can just keep cutting smaller slices for you. Nah, it's making and me hungry, Graham. Pies and slices. <laughs> it's getting close to lunchtime. We want to wrap this up. But um, Graham, in in your in that question, um, there was also a point that I wanted to address um, that, that you didn't haven't read out yet. But there was the the um, Sonal also asked about um, there only being six stocks on the buy list and expressing some disappointment um, that they, we couldn't find more stuff to buy. And I just wanted to address that, um, and and I'll give you guys a, a chance to say something about that as well. But um, I, I think I just wanted to to highlight that there are really two um, there are two times that we really earn our our money um, in this in this business. Um, one is um, staying incredibly disciplined uh, when markets are rising um, and people are getting carried away and, and valuations look look high. Um, we earn our keep by doing nothing. Like do, doing doing little in those times is incredibly difficult and incredibly valuable. And and I I would suggest that that we're doing our jobs by maintaining discipline and and not um, searching for things to put on the buy list to have things on the buy list. You know we we've maintained discipline and and only upgrading things as they become uh, as value appears and having disregard for. Um, the business really because i know it looks everyone is aware that it looks terrible that we have very few buys um so we you know we live and breathe by subscriber numbers and and it's not good for business to have such a small buy list but that's i mean i, I think we're doing the right thing there um by maintaining discipline the other time we earn out uh, we earn out food we earn our dollars is when um when there's panic and blood and and we um and that's the chance to upgrade and i i think the team did that brilliantly during the COVID crisis we had a buy list um, of almost 40 stocks at that stage, the most we've ever had. And those, th- and, and that's equally correct. I know if, if even that's not great for business, right? You don't want to be confusing members with a huge amount of potential stocks to buy, but that's also the right move. So those two times, being aggressive when everyone's fearful, being disciplined when everyone's aggressive. This is when we earn our keep. And um, I think, I think, um, I think we're doing the right thing. I understand that from a member's point of view, it's not ideal. You want more things to buy. I'm sure you've got a portfolio you want to fill. You, want, you have goals you want to reach. This is a long game, and and I think what we're doing is is right, is right here. And I hope that's that's clear. Yeah, and I think also portfolios are constructed. Well, the best portfolios aren't constructed kind of in one sweep. Sometimes you might come, you mm. might suddenly inherit some money or something or other that means that you do need to suddenly put a lot of capital to work at once. But yep. it's okay to take your time that like if you buy your favorite stocks on our buy list now and then a few more at the end of the year and then a few more mid next year or something like that, you can build a portfolio over time. And it does kind of, the, the buy list does uh, breathe in a sense. There's there's very often these increases and decreases in the number of stocks. No. Uh, and you got to kind of, role with that that you pick your favorites and what what you understand the best of the investment case that you find the best at each particular time but your portfolio itself probably shouldn't be 
suddenly going to three stocks, suddenly going to 12, 40 stocks or whatever. Uh, yeah, you're better off to buy and hold for the long term and then add them gradually as they, as those opportunities kind of present themselves. Nick, anything to add? I mean, to me, if I just look at my personal portfolio, it's very similar in terms of um, probably holding more cash than I have done probably ever. And, mm. and that's not a call on the macro environment or interest rates rising or anything yeah. to do with that. It's just some of the previous positions uh, that I held have risen to valuations that I thought were too high, and so I've sold some, and I haven't found uh, new opportunities to redeploy that capital. And, really? But I haven't felt like I was need forced to do it. Um, yeah, money's earning 5% in the bank at the moment, so it's not the end of the world. But I think remaining disciplined when valuations are high is just so important. Um, and yeah, I, I think I think John might have mentioned uh, maybe on an earlier podcast that when the buy list generally shrinks, would be, it's been a pretty good uh, indicator that valuations are quite high. Um, I'll also throw a a tease out there that um, from the stocks I cover, LaVisa, Mac Telecom, Minres, and RPM Global, probably four of my top five positions, um, they're all within a whisker of being upgraded, less than 10%, um, sometimes you know a couple of percentage points of being upgraded. So there are a lot of decent businesses just on the brink and you know, Auckland we, Airport too. We throw that one in there. Yep, that's a good one as well, Graham. Um, and uh, yeah, so if we stay patient and and you know you can also act without us pulling official official trigger. We actually have to have lines in the sand, but in reality, you want to be slowly entering and exiting um, well before I, I think those lines in the sand are crossed. If you're a more experienced investor, you should be able to do that. Um, but but because we're running a service for thousands of people we we have to wait for those lines in the sand to, to be crossed um yeah waiting for one day maybe nvidia um that sounds incredible um nick i'm gonna pay more attention to that in the future but um let's um let's leave it there shall we nick thank you very much for your time this morning thanks Gaurav. thanks for Graham, we're going to go grab some pie. I think it's a it's a good idea. You put the put the <laughs> yep. idea in my head. I'll give you a tiny tiny slice. <laughs> <laughs> and for everyone else, thank you for listening. <laughs>